0: You're listening to audio from Mountain View Church located in Murphy, North Carolina. If you'd like more information, you can find us at www.mtnvu.org or on Instagram and Facebook at Mountain View Church NC. But hey, if you haven't tried the baked cinnamon apple cold brew extract out there, funny. Well, as you can tell, I am not Mike. Um, I got a little more hair here. I think not I'm not saying he's balding I'm just saying he keeps it oh he's balding (laughs) uh, from his own lips Uh, and and I got a little more hair here uh, also by choice I think Um, but uh, yeah I've been tasked this morning with kind of preaching a, a standalone message as we leave exodus behind and head towards Ephesians in the future, with a brief pit stop for Easter, uh, in a series we're going to call "Lukewarm." And so, as I was tasked to try to figure out what to do here, like it's one—it's always a little scary when somebody's like, "Yeah, just preach whatever," like preach a preach—you know, just do a standalone, whatever, man. One, don't tempt me. <laughs> right? I, there's no telling what I'm liable to choose, um, but. I ended up landing on uh, setting up where we're going uh, next week uh, in our Lukewarm series for Easter and Palm Sunday, and then also kind of setting up where we are going in the book of Ephesians. So uh, we're going to be in Revelation today. Um, That's not a joke. Uh, We're going to talk about dragons and the end times and left behind and Kirk Cameron and the COVID-19 vaccine mark of the beast. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Uh, that's all a joke. I don't think any of that's true. I'm just Okay. Um, bad joke. Bad joke. Uh, we're actually just going to be in Revelation chapter 2. We're going to look at the letter to the church at Ephesus. Before we dive too deep into this, I, I do have to give a shameless plug. Uh, you saw the announcement video, Be Afraid of the Pink Toilet. I have two of them, and I am not afraid to put them in your front yard with sparklers, plants, rolls of toilet paper. I mean, we will... This week is happening. A bunch of y'all don't even know it's coming, but it's coming. Um, so better get you plan because I'm going to be rolling up in your yard in a church van with some toilets. <laughs> Just saying. Um, so, yeah, don't, don't get too pumped. We're not, uh, we're not diving into eschatology or anything too crazy or out there. So if you've got your Bibles, flip over to Revelation chapter 2. Uh, and just to kind of set this up a little bit, this is John's letter to the church at Ephesus here. And it's, it's really Jesus' letter here. Right? This is being con- passed through John, through this vision, but these are the direct words of Jesus to the church. Uh, it's in the first person, as j- if Jesus is speaking here. Uh, and so this is Jesus' words to the church at Ephesus. But here's the thing, anytime we see a letter like this, or uh, a first person narrative kind of thing spoken... We know that that also applies to us, right? Like all of the is God breathed, So this is not just for the ancient church of Ephesus. This has bearing for us as believers here and now. And so if you don't know anything about the church at Ephesus, uh, Ephesus is a, it was a small city. It was a, a center of travel. It was a huge seaport in this known world of the Roman Empire outside of the, the main portion of Rome in what we know is now modern-day Italy. Uh, across the Aegean Sea is Ephesus, and it's this huge city port. It ended up also being uh, a shrine to one of the ancient Greek and Roman goddesses. That was a big deal. Um, Paul visits there on his second missionary journey on his way to Corinth. Paul comes on his third journey and spends a bunch of time there. He even writes a letter, the book of Ephesians, that we're going to look at here in a couple months there. We see in Acts chapter 19 that he has this whole entire conversation where he attacks the idolatry of the city of Ephesus and the folks who sell the idols get so mad that they're like, let's kill him. Um, pretty crazy. Then he eventually sets Timothy As this pastor, this young man over the church at Ephesus and writes his letters to Timothy, a pastor at Ephesus. And so Ephesus is a place that is near and dear to Paul's heart. It's near and dear to the history of the church. It's a big deal. The city of Ephesus, the letter to the Ephesians is quite possibly to me one of the most important documents in all of the New Testament. Not to say that the rest of it's not important, but there's so much that happens in this small little city of Ephesus between Paul and Timothy and what John writes here and what we know of the ancient early church, Ephesus is a big deal. And so here uh, we know that John writes this uh, word from Jesus and he's gonna narrow out throughout this first three chapters of Revelation these specific letters to these churches. And he says each of these churches is given a lampstand. What does the lampstand mean? Yeah, I don't know. I've like, it seems like to be a reference to light, to hope, to, to this life that is within the church. But again, we're looking at Revelation, and so who knows what's, what all the minor details that we could be missing. I'm quite confident that one day we're going to stand before Jesus and just ask, like, it's a revelation, tell me about it. And he's going to just laugh at us for a second, like, <laughs> y'all thought you figured it out, you didn't get anything. I'm convinced. I'm convinced. All of us will be sitting there: the pre-trib, the post-trib, the i millennial, the post-millennial, the pre-millennial. We'll all be just going around and be like, ah, 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 "You were right." One of us will be right. One of us will be wrong, and it'll be fine. We won't care at that moment. I think we'll all just be like, "Jesus is here. You're here. There's a feast. We're good. This is awesome." Um, there you go. Uh, so, if you got your Bibles, Revelation chapter two. And this is what it says in verse number one This against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you are, have fallen, repent, and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Yet this you have you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. And to the angel, oh wait, sorry, I just read one further verse than I actually had to. Disregard. Verse 8, forget it. All right, so what is he saying here? All right, we see this. We see that this church in Ephesus is one that's near and dear to John and Timothy and Paul. They're all writing about it. What is this, this figure, this angel over the church? Who is God holding these, hand, these stars in his right hand and these golden lampstands? Well, that's that's really not the important stuff that we want to talk about. We know who God is. We know what the church is. And so for us, I want us to take a moment today and just figure out really quickly how this applies to our life. There are texts sometimes, like we've read in Exodus, that are for us to grow in wisdom and knowledge and understanding of the characteristics of who God is. And there are texts like this where you kind of just go, okay, this is application. This I get, this. And and for me... Uh, I don't know if you know this about me. Uh, I'm not a scholar. I don't, I don't know if any of you one day were like, man, I bet he has a master's. I bet he's working on his doctorate. Um, if Taco Bell had a doctorate program, I might get that. Um, do they have a doctorate of ground beef? Um, but for me, I, I, I grew up like in a, in a culture of my home where my parents didn't really go to church for most of my young childhood. My grandparents took me to church and I went to a very traditional church and in that church it was very much uh, kind of these same truths preached over and over in the same way like recycled messages and so it wasn't until I got to college that I was really challenged with how do I apply the scriptures to my life? How do I grow? I remember my freshman year of college I spent the first semester as a walk-on on on the football team and thought I was really cool until I failed English and was no longer a walk-on on the football team. Uh, I was just a student at Shorter College, uh, the private Baptist liberal arts college that was smaller than my high school, uh, where I was actually even less cool there than I was at my high school. Um, And I remember I was playing worship in a coffee shop one time or playing music in a coffee shop, and a guy said, hey, you should come lead worship for our little on-campus Bible study. And I was like, all right, whatever. Uh, And that guy gave me a copy of a book called Desiring God by John Piper. I remember reading that book and being like, I missed it. Okay, something something in my life has to change. And as I began to study and and apply scriptures to my life and read more and listen more and hear these smart people who I'd never heard of before, like, you know, I came into college super naive and thought that like, you know, the hippest pastor in the world because I grew up in Atlanta, Georgia was uh, either Louis Giglio or Andy Stanley. I didn't know that there was like other people out there in the world that were uh, cooler than them. Nothing against them. Okay, maybe some stuff against them. But, um, but there are pastors that are cooler than them and smarter than them and wiser than them. And I started listening to these guys and I thought, I missed it all. I missed it all. I've got to figure out how to apply this. And so for me, I have a pension to, to look at passages like this and be like, how does this work for us? How does this work for our church? How does this apply to our life? So I think there's a couple simple truths that we can pull out of this this morning. The first one is this. Even the best leader can't fix a church. Right, we know the church at Ephesus has good leadership. Planted and established by Paul and, and apostles and, and leaders that he appointed. Trained and pastored by Timothy, who Paul writes letters to and treats as a son. Right, like, you know, th- this, is the, this is the idea of stepping to church and being like, wait, who's the pastor here? And they're like, oh, we've got Charles Spurgeon and his associate pastor is Billy Graham. Right, like we're talking about the, they got an all star team here. But what, is, what does John say here? What does Jesus speak to the church? He says, I know the works you have, but I have something against you. Right? This is a church with excellent leadership, excellent discipleship, an excellent folk, group of folks pouring into them. But guess what? They struggle. Why? Because every church struggles. Why? Because there's no perfect church. And if there was one, it would be imperfect the moment any of us walked in the door. Right? That church is full of imperfect people. It's full of sinners. Call it for what it is. Right? Paul himself is not a leader that wants to be pedi- like put on a pedestal. He says, imitate me. But Paul himself knows his faults and failures and the things he's done in his past. Paul, the one who killed Christians. Right? Peter, a foundational piece of the faith, has to be called out for only eating with Jews instead of Gentiles, right? No leader's perfect. Because here's the, here's the truth, a perfect leader can't perfect a church, but an imperfect leader can infect a church, right? Like, so, so no matter how perfect Mike or me or T or any of our elders lead our congregation here, there are still sinners in this building and we are still sinners and so we will fail and fall short. And we can't work some magical potion to fix our church body. We can pour into and toil and strive and pursue all the things of righteousness to propel the church forward as we submit ourselves to Christ, but we can't perfect the church. Only Jesus can. But here's the thing. If we fail as leaders, we can infect the church. If I fail as a leader, if Mike fails, if T fails, if we fall short as leaders, we can cause dissension inside the body. But no perfect leader can fix a church. It doesn't matter how hard we try. We must lean and place all of our understanding and strength on Jesus. We must know that Jesus gives the increase. We must know that Jesus is the one who does the true discipleship. We must know that Jesus is the inerrant word of God incarnate. And that is what drives us, guides us, directs us. It is what we have to lay our foundation on. It has to be the anchor and the focal point of this church body or it will surely fail in the long run. Right, look at any church across America. They may have millions of attendees at this moment in time, but if they do not anchor themselves in Jesus, it will fall apart. There are empty cathedrals and buildings around the world that were once filled with thousands of people. But they can be empty. Right, there, there are plenty of churches that are totally empty. The church I grew up in that was four or 500 people when I was a kid is empty today. There's no one meeting there today because some leaders failed along the way and the church folded because man will fail you, but Jesus will not. He won't. That's the truth of it. I'm going to let you down at some point. And I pray to God that it is not some significant moral failing and I fight against that and I set up boundaries and I have accountability with my brothers and this elder team so that we try our hardest not to fail and fall short. But at some point, I'm going to do something that you don't like. (laughs) I've already done that to some people, right? Like I've probably said something up here when I've preached before and you've been like, really? That's the line you're going with. I know this to be true because one time someone had to tell me. I don't think that was I don't think that was real appropriate for a sermon. She was right. She was right. I admit it. I'm going to fall short. Right? I can't fix a church. The way that God grows and acts in righteousness is when the whole body pursues the same God with the same fervor and the same passion. If one part of the body is well, does it make the whole body well? No. Right? We're, we're looking at a holistic activity as a church body. Right? If we're really, really good at one thing, but really bad at another thing, does that mean that our church body is fully functioning? No. Right? Like, if I've been hit by a truck, but my hand didn't break, is my body okay? Uh, I would I would say probably not, right? If I have cancer of the liver, is the rest of my body okay? No, because it affects everything. The blood cells and the platelets are in overdrive and the other organs are trying to make up for the loss of function, right? If one part of our body is not functioning appropriately and in the right manner and way, our, our body can't function. So that starts from top to bottom. That starts with our leadership team. That starts with our elders and our pastors being of one mind, of one accord, of one passion and purpose. And I'm so thankful to sit around a room with other guys who seem to have the same mindset and focus. Right, like, you know, people tell you all the time, like, we work great, we don't disagree. I mean, we don't really disagree. Like, I look at our elder group, and I'm like can't think the last time we didn't make a real unanimous decision why well because i think we have one mindset together have we had minor disagreement sure but it starts at the top of the bottom if we want a wellness in the church the leader has to lead but the rest of the body has to follow and here's the thing if a leader leads well then the body is called to follow that. If a leader leads poorly, the body is called to call that out and address that and fix that. That's a miracle where the human body works, right? That if, if my brain cells aren't firing and my synapses are not working the right way, the rest of my body is like, get it together, chief, right? Like you have rhythms to the way that your body functions that puts things back in a line. It's crazy how the body works. That's the same with the church body. Right? So even the best leader can't fix a church. So where's the truth in this? If a, if a best leader can't fix a church, how do we get fixed? How does the church grow? Well, we pursue the first love. Right? That's what John says a little later. You've forgotten the first love. But before that, what does he say? He says, "I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance." How you cannot bear with those who are evil but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake. And you have not grown weary. And he says, I know your works. We can be good at works as a church body but still failing. All right, this one's a hard one. Sometimes the fruits there... But even like the wimpiest of tree can bear a little bit of fruit. If there's a healthy root system, there's still times that a tree can bear good fruit. But if it's poisoned from within, eventually that fruit dies and withers out. We as a church can do good works. We can seek justice. We can care for widows and orphans. We can wrap our lives around the actions of believers and do good things and still be empty. There are people in the secular world who care for widows and orphans all the time that don't have Jesus. There are people who do good works. We as a church body are involved in so many amazing and awesome things. <coughs> but that doesn't always mean that, that the root in our heart is in the right place. Right? There's plenty of times I do stuff. Right? Like I, I, I could lavish my wife with gifts. I could bring her... She didn't really care for flowers. I could bring her ice cream. She likes ice cream. Um... <laughs> I can bring her pints of ice cream, but if I don't intentionally follow that up by investing time with her and talking to her, right, y'all, how many of y'all read that five love languages book? It's whatever. It's good, I guess. <laughs> I mean, I feel like, yeah, I feel like for most people, uh, most of the guys in the room are like, we all have the same love languages right words of affirmation and physical touch is like 90% of the guys in the room they're like just talk to me and tell me I'm pretty you know uh, ladies are way more complicated so my wife like hers is is quality time and acts of service well if i bring her ice cream great like that's a gift she'll like it but if i ignore her and don't invest time with her and don't have conversation with her she doesn't feel a connection It's the same way with the church body. We can do plenty of good works and actions, but if we don't invest our time with Jesus, spend time invested in the Scriptures, love one another in community together, if we don't spend time together as the body of Christ, acting like the body of Christ, we can do all the good works we want to, but the heart behind it is rotten. That's the truth of it. You and I, as believers in Jesus, still have sin that we wrestle with, and so we still have selfishness. Sometimes it's easy for me to get wrapped up in things and be like, well, our church is doing such awesome things. And I think, but have I invested, like, student ministry-wise, just, just my, my vein of, of things that I run in here. It's easy for me to be like, we did summer camp. We did rock the universe. We did these cool events. We, we'll go bowling. It'll be great. Okay, well, did I, did I spend time investing in students individually? Have I had one-on-one conversations with the students? Have I wondered what's going on in their life? Do I know about their home situations? If I'm doing all the great activities, awesome. The kids will be here and that's, that's super cool for them. But if I'm not invested in their life, do I have leverage for discipleship? I'd argue no. And so our church can do great things in the community, but if we don't do it out of a heart of love and submission to Christ, they're just actions. We can be good at works and still failing. That's not to say that works aren't good, right? Works are necessary. Works are a measuring stick, often for how we are growing deep inside, right? Paul says this in Galatians chapter six. He said, "Let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up." Right? There's a reason we do good works. We're called to. Right, read the book of James. It's pretty clear. Faith without works is dead. We have to act. But here's the other caveat to that. You can have great theology and still be failing. Right? What does John say here? He says, uh, "You cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false." You, I know you are enduringly, patiently bearing up for my namesake, and you have not grown weary. Right? These guys are booting out false teachers and dealing with, with stuff being taught that was not of the Scripture. They're looking at folks and saying, no, 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 no. You don't line up with Paul. You don't line up with the Bible. You don't line up with the Scriptures of the Old Testament. I'm not trusting you. You're teaching falsehoods. Right? Matter of fact, a few verses down, he says, I have this with you that... Uh, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Seems to be that we understand that the Nicolaitans were teaching some sort of heresy, most of it around this idea that they were uh, engaging in idolatry, idol worship, and sexual immorality inside the practices of worship. And so these guys are like, no, we're not getting down with that. We're we're not dealing with that stuff in the church. We're not going to let your pagan idol worship step into the worship of Jesus. These are good things. These are good things for us to see false teaching and call it out. These are good things for us to say, no, 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 that doesn't line up with the Bible. Because here's the thing, let's be honest, in our culture right now today, there are plenty of churches that are not doing works, and instead, they're also giving into culture and saying, no, it's okay, we'll teach that. It's okay, well, let's interpret the Bible through the lens of the culture. That's not how this thing works. The Bible is the inerrant word of God, and so everything must be filtered through it. It is the filter in which we engage everything in culture. It is the filter by which we disciple our children. It is the way we interpret media, right? We have this bad problem, especially as Americans, of, of turning off our critical thinking when we're watching TV or listening to a politician talk, right? We. We do, we, we, we start thinking about things through a morality that we have rather than a scriptural mindset because there's plenty of things on every side of the aisle in media and in politics that we should not agree with if we are followers of Jesus. On both sides. And what we do is we, we begin to let the, the culture interpret the scripture for us. And we can't do that. Right. John says that's one of the beautiful things about the church at Ephesus is they're doing good works, they're caring for one another, and they're calling out heresy and false teaching. We have to be able to stand firm on good and solid doctrine. We see that throughout the scriptures. We're called to pursue solid teaching and doctrine. Right? First Timothy, Paul writes this to Timothy, the pastor in Ephesus in 1 Timothy 4 and says, Keep close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so you will save both you and your hearers. We have to hold fast to to solid doctrine. We have to hold fast to biblical truth. We have to hold fast to the morality that is anchored in the word of God, not in the culture. And we're being force-fed a lie, and many, many, many people in the church are believing it. Believing that we can function by just doing good works and not having good theology. Or we can function by having really great theology but everything's internal. Forget about the world around us. But here's the the balance. One side of that coin on each side doesn't work. And as John tells us here, and Jesus speaks through him, sometimes even holding fast to good works and good doctrine is not enough. Because the core of it is this. What does he say next? He says, but I have this against you. That you have abandoned the love you had at first. What's he talking about? What love? What love is he talking about? Well, could be the love we have for one another, could be the love we have for God. I think what he's really coming back to is Jesus' own words in Matthew 22 when he says, Teacher, they asked him, what is the greatest commandment of the law? And he said to them, you should love your Lord, your God, with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment. And the second is like it. You should love your neighbor as yourself on these two commandments depend all of the law and the prophets. I think that's what Jesus is saying to the church here. He's saying, you're doing good works. You're doing good things. You love biblical truth. But here's the thing. Do you love Those things, the work of the church and the teaching of the church, or do you love Jesus? And then, do you love the church? Not the building, but the people that are sitting around you right now. Because it's really easy for us to say we love God and we love the church. It's a whole other thing for us to actually flesh that out. And the way that we care for one another, the way we love individually with one another, the way we sacrifice for one another, the way that we do this not because of what we can get out of it, but because it is our due diligence and service to God, the King of all things. I think this is what Jesus is getting to here. This idea, this first love that what brought you into a relationship with Jesus to begin with ultimately was love. Right? It was this, this love for you can save me from my sins. You're the only hope I have in this life. There is nothing else. Right, We teach this to our kids in a catechism. What's our only hope in life and death? Jesus. Jesus. Right? That's our first love. We come to Jesus because He is our only hope. He is our only salvation. He is the only thing that can sustain us and give us life and give us hope for a future. We come to that love And then Jesus tells us, how do you flesh that all out? Love me and love the people around you. And let's be honest, the second one's a lot harder. (laughs) Some of y'all are Florida fans. You know what that's like? Just kidding. I got plenty of Florida fans out there that are nice people, wonderful people. Right? Loving people's hard. I tell people all the time, man, student ministry would be so much easier if it weren't for the parents. <laughs> right? Because teenagers, they're impressionable and dumb. <laughs> and so you can just say, You're acting like an idiot, and they're like, Okay, it's fair. <laughs> Adults get all offended by that kind of stuff. They get offended when you say, hey, your kid's acting like an idiot. They're like, they would never. And you're like... You probably complained this morning when you found a half-eaten bag of Cheetos in the pantry, like, open and stale. Why? Because your your kid's a doofus. (laughs) A lovable doofus. (laughs) We're called to love people. I think that's what Jesus is getting out here. He's saying... Great. Love the works of the church. Love the things that you can do for the church and through the church for the community around you. Love the doctrine. Love it. Hold fast to it. Believe it. Read it. Study it. Apply it to your life. Make sure it it fixes the way you think about things. But ultimately, don't put those in the place of the fact that your relationship with Jesus is first and foremost. It doesn't matter how many doctrines I believe in in the long run. If I believe that Jesus is who saved me, all those other minor doctrines, they're open-handed things that I can let loose for the hope of Jesus. Right? That I can pass the eye with somebody who doesn't hold the same views that I do on baptism or eschatology for the sake of Jesus and our community. For the people who need Him. I, I, man, on Wednesday mornings, I stand at the middle school and I teach in 20 minutes to a bunch of crazy little middle schoolers with their hair like all 17 different directions. Some of them I'm like... I, Does your mother let you dress yourself? She shouldn't. Um, Right? And they come from all walks of life and all different kinds of churches. I have a kid in there who the first day said, well, uh, my mom is allowing me to come to check out your religion because I'm Norse. And I was like, people still believe that? He said, yes. (laughs) All right. He's got a Thor necklace on. And I was like, I just thought that was like kind of popular now because of the Vikings TV show and Avengers. Um, I don't know if people will believe in this. That kid still comes every single day. Here's the thing. Do I love that kid enough to continue to wake up and be there at 7.30 in the morning on Wednesday mornings? Do you love your coworkers enough even though they voted for somebody you didn't vote for? Or they're for whatever resolution is happening here in the county that you didn't want to, like a roundabout. <laughs> I know that's the hot topic right now. Right? Everybody fighting about roundabouts. Um Right? Or, or they root for a different sports team. Or they just chew annoyingly. You know, like, y'all been around some of those people. I'm related to some of those people where you're like, if I have to spend seven more minutes at this table, I'm going to tear your teeth out and give you dentures. <laughs> you chew like a horse. Um, right? Like, do you love those people enough to put that stuff aside and actually care? Do you love your Catholic brother enough to say, yeah, we disagreed about a bunch of stuff, but I'm going to continue to preach Jesus so that both of us get to the same place when this life is over? Or your Methodist brother, or your Presbyterian brother, or heaven forbid, your Pentecostal. <laughs> I'm teasing. I just kid. A kid. That's always a fun one. Right? Do you love people enough? That's the point he's making here. Is he's saying... Man, this church here, they do works. They do the work of the gospel. They teach and hold fast to the truths of the gospel. But I I don't think they were loving one another enough. I don't think they were loving Jesus with all of their heart, soul, and mind and strength. And I don't think they were loving one another in a way that fleshed out gospel community. So what does he say to them? And this is where we're going to wrap things up this morning. What does he say to them? Repent. Right? He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant you to eat the tree of life, which is paradise and God. Right? That's the end result, but what does he say right before that? I will come and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Here's the thing. Church buildings, church communities, pastors, leadership, they all die and pass away at some point. Right? We're fortunate we just celebrated 18 years of Mountain View Church being in existence. But here's the thing nothing is promised. Nothing is promised. And I'm sure in the early days of this church, there were times when it was like, that's it, we're done. <laughs> close the doors. We, this is, we're not going to survive this struggle. I'll be honest, but six months into my first year here, when it was like, congratulations, you get to preach every Sunday until we find somebody else, and I thought, that's it, close the doors. I give up. <laughs> I've run out of gas. Right? Those things, they pass away. But those who hold fast to Christ will cross into eternity and the legacy of faith and the legacy of the gospel will last forever. Especially for those who hold fast. Right? He says, I'll remove your lampstand unless you repent. We need to be a church that loves God, loves one another. I know that's the cliché thing, but I think this is the third component that gets left out with a lot of churches who use that phrase, love God and love people. I think the third part of that should be and repent. <laughs> love God, love people and repent. We need to be a church people who are continually functioningly living out repentance. We're forgiving one another, we're seeking forgiveness from one another and we're changing and turning from our ways. Right, We've got to learn from our mistakes and grow. We have to be continually repenting because we know that the church body and the church building does not last forever on this earth, but the truth of the gospel does. And so we continue to repent and pursue Jesus because Jesus is forever. It's a kingdom that has no end. We pursue the kingdom. So I want to encourage you, this week, live it out. Don't just be a church member from Mountain View that does good works. That wears your fresh new Mountain View swag that you got. Your new t-shirt and hoodie. But be, be somebody who lives it out. Loves people genuinely for the hope of the gospel. Don't be someone who just holds fast to good doctrine. But refuses to have deep conversations with people. Would rather call out someone's lack of this or that. When it comes to knowing the Bible. And instead speak truth to them. Preach truth. Jesus and repentance and come to faith knowing that we may not agree on Calvinism or Arminianism or anything like that, but in the end, if we love Jesus, we believe He has saved us, we believe there is an eternity, and we believe we are called to preach a message of the gospel that we can work arm in arm together. Love God and love people and continually repent. And So this morning, we're going to wrap up our service as the worship team comes up by, one, encouraging you to take a moment to pray and seek forgiveness of God and repent. And then too, as an act of repentance, to take part in communion. in this remembrance of the body that was broken for you and the blood that was poured out for you. What, what a better way to flesh this out than making a statement of repentance in our prayer life and then making a statement of our commitment to the first love we had. For you married folks,